Good morning. It is great to see you this morning. Isn't it good to be together as God's people? You know why it is so good for us to be together like this? You know why? It's because God is so good. And we come together to worship and to encourage one another in really big truths about God and worship Him. If you have your Bibles, I'd invite you to turn to the book of Titus. If you don't have a Bible, we keep them in the seats in front of you. If you don't own a Bible, avail yourself to one of the Bibles that we have in the foyer at the Welcome Center. You can have that. That can be our gift to you. What a perfect gift from a church, a Bible. Our text today is again the same text as it was last week. It is Titus chapter 1 verses 5 through 9. This is the word of the Lord. It says, This is why I left you in Crete, so that you might put what remained into order and appoint elders in every town as I have directed you. If anyone is above reproach, the husband of one wife and his children are believers and not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination, for the For an overseer, as God's steward, must be above reproach. He must not be arrogant or quick-tempered or a drunkard or violent or greedy for gain, but hospitable, a lover of good, self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. He must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught, so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also rebuke those who contradict it. Let's ask the Lord for help again this morning. Father, we come to you this morning needing your word more than anything. More than anything. The psalmist said that your word is better than fine gold. It's sweeter to our palate than honey. Lord, that might not be the case for everyone here. They might not have tasted of your word like that. And I pray this morning that you would move in our hearts so that we would love your word. And so that your word would be the shaping means of your grace in our lives through the spirit as he applies it to our hearts. We might be shaped by your word. And so that we might say truly your word is better to our hearts than fine gold. And sweeter to our tongues than honey. Oh Lord, do that work. No one is born with that sort of thought. No one is born with that inclination. We are born in sin. And that makes us dull to the hearing of your word. So Father, we need your spirit. And I pray that your spirit would move freely in this place, in our hearts today. Thank you for this church. Thank you for how you continue to move here. Thank you for your grace. Thank you for Jesus. Thank you for the cross. Thank you that the tomb is empty. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. I don't know if you like the Chronicles of Narnia, but I'll just get this out of the way. If this is going to work out, you know, with me as your pastor for preaching, uh, you're probably going to want to read those books uh, because they're like, just so you can understand my sermons, because I use illustrations from them a lot. You don't have to read them. I don't care. They're good, though. They're really, really good. 
My wife, Maya, reminded me this weekend of a particularly powerful scene and plot thread that goes throughout the book, The Silver Chair. You read The Silver Chair? One of the main characters named Jill had just met the lion, Aslan, face to face. And she's about to be sent, she doesn't know this yet, she's about to be sent on a task to Narnia. And the lion gave her four signs as instructions for what she's to do in Narnia. Very specific instructions. And it was vital, the the lion emphasized this, it was vital that Jill remembered these. Listen to the lion trying to impress this upon Jill. Okay, this is a quote from the silver chair. It says, first remember, 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 remember the signs. Say them to yourself when you wake in the morning and when you lie down at night. And when you wake in the middle of the night, whatever strange things may happen to you, let nothing turn your mind from following the signs. The air will not always be this clear to you. So remember how I have spoken to you now. Do not let the thickened air of Narnia confuse your mind. Things will look different there. That's why it's so important to know the signs by heart and pay no attention to appearances. Remember the signs. Remember the signs. Believe the signs. Nothing else matters. And at that, she is sent away onto her task. And in the story, it is remembering the signs and believing the words Aslan told her. That's when she's doing well. And it is when she strays for them, strays from them, or forgets them, or thinks that she doesn't need them, thinks that she knows a better way, that she flounders and she finds herself in precarious places. What a great parable for our age. This is what God has said about his word to those he is sending on his task. Only it's worded a bit differently, right? Look again at verse 9, chapter 1, verse 9. He must hold fast to the trustworthy word. He must hold firmly to the trustworthy word as taught. That's God's command to the church leader. Hold firm to the word. He must remember. He must believe the word. It's when he strays from them or forgets them or thinks that he knows better than them that he and the church he leads will flounder. Last week we did a flyover of the qualifications of an elder from from this passage, from verses 5 through 9. And if you recall, I grouped them into four categories. And I called them, in in faith-esque fashion, the four loves of an elder. The elder must love his family. The elder must love others. The elder must love virtue. And the elder must love the word of God. We hovered over the first three of those loves last week. He's called to love his wife. I pulled that from the husband of one wife. He's called to love his children, to discipline them in the fear and the admonition of the Lord. His children are faithful. He is to love his family. And he's to love others. He's not to be self-oriented. He's not to be angry or a bully or violent or drunkard. Instead, he is to be hospitable. And he loves virtue. He is literally, and I love this phrase. I thought about it almost all week long last week. He is literally to be a lover of good. He loves and pursues holiness. He lives a disciplined and self-controlled life. He loves virtue. 
Today our focus is on that fourth love. The one who would lead God's church is one who loves the word of God. Or in the words of Paul, he is one who holds firmly to the trustworthy word as taught. So this morning, we will press into that final verse of this passage, verse 9. And we'll take it in two parts, basically the two parts of the verse. First, we'll unpack, hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught. Let's take that together. And then we'll consider why that's so vital for that church leader, for that elder, and for the church from the second half of the verse. My hope for you is that you will see how good the word is for your life. And you will resolve to hold your grip tightly upon it. That we will continue to resolve to do that as a church. That you will do that as a church leader or a potential church leader. And that you would do that as a Christian. For truly it is when you forget his word or you stray from it or you think you know better than it. That you will flounder. And you will find yourself in a precarious place. So I'm praying that God would do this work of enlarging our heart for the word of God. Giving us a greater appreciation for his words to us. They are indeed precious words. May the Lord do that work this morning. So what is this trustworthy word as taught? I think it seems plain that it is the word that was taught to Titus by the apostles. The New Testament was not completed when Titus would read this epistle originally. The New Testament would be compiled later. But there were already a growing body of apostolic teaching. The apostles were teaching God's word, compiling it. These letters were going out. The gospels were being circulated. These writings of scripture would be the New Testament. It's safe to say that this trustworthy word is God's word, the Bible. And at the center of that word is the message of the gospel, the word that was made flesh and dwelt among us. It is the message of grace from God and peace with God through the person and the work of Christ for all who would trust in Jesus alone. Paul has already broached this with Titus, right? Look up just a few verses up there in the book of Titus, verses 1 through 4. He leads with the promise. The promise That our never lying God makes to us. That made to us before eternity. Based on the work of Christ. The promise of eternal life. All of the apostolic teaching is God's word. All of the Bible was inspired by God for our prophet. And we know that because that's how Paul talks. That's literally how Paul talks about it in 2 Timothy 3. 16 through 17. We should read that because it's a passage that also helps us why this word is trustworthy. So 2 Timothy 3, 16 through 17 says, All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. Why is this word trustworthy? Well, because it was breathed out by God, right? It was breathed out by God, by the creator of heaven and earth. His word, when when God says something, his word is by default trustworthy. Because he said it, by the nature of the fact that he said it. All of his words are trustworthy. God's words are trustworthy. Not all words are trustworthy. 
right? Not all words are equally trustworthy. They're very untrustworthy words. So I did this car repair not long ago on my family car. Um, YouTube is a pretty helpful resource when you're trying to fix stuff, usually. Uh, There's this little vent thing. If you're a mechanic, forgive me. Just, yeah, pay no attention. But there's this little vent thing in cars. I don't know if you know this. I didn't know this. But when you slam your door, if you didn't have this little vent thing, it would make your ears pop because of the pressure. So there's a, there's a relief valve uh, in the back of my van uh, that had gone bad. And then, so instead of just letting air out, it was letting air in. And when I drove on dusty roads, it would let dust come into my car. And it would fill the car with dust. And so I had to fix these little vents thing. So I took it to the mechanic and I told him what was happening, and he mentioned the part that was broken, uh, and he said he would fix it for $600. And I thought, wow, okay, uh, well, you mentioned the part, I think I'll go fix it. And so I, the part was 20 bucks, right? So I went and I ordered the part, and then I found a YouTube video, um, and I followed it. And the YouTube video had me take the entire back bumper apart. And a bunch of other parts, just to get to the part that I needed to make this repair. Halfway through, I realized, I just like, could do the measurements myself and realized that if I had just taken the rear taillights off, I could have reached the vent and probably replaced them that way. After I had taken this whole thing apart and parts are everywhere. And so I put this thing back together, replaced that valve, that vent thing. And I went back to that tech at the dealership, and I just mentioned it to him. I said, yeah, you know, I, I fixed that myself, um, and I took the entire bumper cover thing off, and, and he just laughed. He's like, why didn't you just take the taillights off? Why did you want to charge me 600 bucks for this? <laughs> Lesson learned. Some words are more trustworthy than others. The tech who knew how the car worked, he knew how the car worked. He knew better than that YouTuber who was just figuring it out like I was. I should have listened to the tech, the one who knew how the car was made. That would have saved me a few hours of my life. Friends, we must listen to the one who knows how the car is made. How you and I are made. How this church is made. How the universe is made. We should listen. His word is trustworthy. I would save us so much anguish as we try to figure this out on our own. You know what I mean? If you've, if you've tried to figure this out on your own, you know what I'm talking about. We should listen to the one who knows how the car is made. You ignore it to your peril. And the church leader, the man who is qualified to serve as an elder or pastor or overseer, you may recall last week that I said that all of those terms refer to the same office, he must be the one who holds firmly to it. So what does that mean and how do I do it? What does it mean to hold fast, hold firmly to his trustworthy word, the word of God? I think it means just that. This is a word picture. When you hold firmly to something, you close your fist tightly around it. You ever do this to a little kid? You know, he wants a quarter and you, you just say, yeah, here, take it. And you just make him, pro everyone did that to me as a kid. I don't do it to anyone because of PTSD. But, but you're, you're trying really hard to pull the, the fingers apart so you can get at that quarter. He's holding firmly to it. That's the word picture. That's what you should do with the word of God. Hold firmly to it. He holds it with a closed fist. 
He holds the truths of God's word with a, uh, with a closed fist. You know, there are so many things we can, open, we can hold with an open hand. There are so many things in the life of the church that we can hold with an open hand. You know what I mean? So many traditions and programs and just ways to go about doing church that we can hold with an open hand. Sadly, many of the divisive battles that have played out in the church in the last century have concerned matters that should have been held with an open hand, but were hold, held with a, a closed fist. Culture and church issues, church matters, things that aren't sinful if they're done one way or done the other way. Just traditional things, matters of preference. There's so many things that we can hold with an open hand. Like whether we decide to stand when we read the text of the Bible before the sermon or whether we decide to remain seated. I know that it has been our tradition, the tradition of this church, to stand. And I respect that tradition. And I understand that it's aimed to show visually by our posture how much we love the Bible and we revere the Bible and we revere God's word. It's a good tradition. Yet, and I'm just using this as an example for our point here, it's just not something I have personally preferred in my preaching ministry. It's my preference to stay seated for that moment as we read God's word. And in my mind, okay, it's the way I'm thinking, it helps Promote a quiet, settled hush as we hear God's word and we prepare to hear the preaching of God's word. Apart from the other times of worship when we stand to sing the word, for example. But sitting is not better than standing. And it's not worse either. It's an open hand thing. You may prefer to stand. And that's perfectly fine. That is perfectly fine. It's an open hand thing. So many things we can hold with an open hand. So many things that we, we, we should consider based on culture or tradition or those kinds of things. And they should not rise to our level in our hearts of a closed fist matter. Are you, are you tracking with me on this? What Paul is teaching in Titus 1.9 is that we must hold the Bible, this, with a closed fist. This is not a preference. Not a preference. I, I might have sat in my office pondering whether it would be more helpful for me to continue the tradition of standing when we read the text each Sunday. I definitely didn't want my practice to cause any distraction to you. Or whether I should just start things off in my preaching ministry here by doing it the way that I was used to for the reasons I just mentioned. I did ponder that actually. I did think about that. But you know what I did not sit in my office and ponder? Not even for a second I didn't ponder whether we should be reading the Bible on Sundays as we gather to worship, or whether I should preach the word to you week in and week out, or instead offer something like self-help talks on how to overcome passivity in your life, or to have better relationships at the workplace, or to be more pleasant and have more positivity by tips like smiling more. I didn't ponder whether we should obey the Bible and how we should live our lives or how we should function as a church. I don't sit and ponder whether I should follow God's word or follow some other path. This is not open to pondering. It's a closed fist matter. 
We will read the Bible. We will hear it preached. We will seek to obey it and be shaped by it. We will hold firmly to the trustworthy word as taught. I will hold by God's grace. I will hold firmly to this word. Your elders by God's grace will hold firmly to this word. The prospective elder, if he is actually qualified to be an elder, will hold firmly to the trustworthy word as taught. He must. And you know why he must? There are many reasons why he must, but Paul gives two of the most important reasons here in this passage. Look with me at the second part of verse 9. So that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. Those are the two big reasons mentioned here. Two pastoral voices, as it were. John Calvin famously said that a pastor must have two voices. His quote, here's the quote exactly. I I put it on my social media this week. You can go find it if you want. Calvin said this, the pastor ought to have two voices, one for gathering the sheep and another for warding off and driving away wolves and thieves. The scripture supplies him the means of doing both. I think that's right on. And I think Calvin must have gotten that idea from Titus 1.9. The pastor indeed must have two voices. A voice of exhortation and encouragement and a voice of rebuke. And the scripture provides him the means of doing both. That's what the phrase, so that means. He must hold fast to the trustworthy word as taught so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine. And so that he may be able to rebuke those who contradict it. I take that to mean that if he doesn't hold fast to the Bible, he has no solid means of instructing people in sound doctrine, a.k.a. the truth. And he has no real means of rebuking those who resist or oppose or contradict or stray or teach something opposite of the truth. But the Bible supplies the means for both of these voices. If we hold fast to the trustworthy word as taught, we are able to exhort and instruct in sound doctrine. We are able, for example, to point people to the hope of the gospel, the singular hope of the gospel. In that book I referenced, The Silver Chair, the lion tells Jill, who is dying of thirst. It's a brilliant scene right in the beginning of that book. He tells her she's dying of thirst and, you know, really thirsty and he tells her, you should come and drink. He says, the lion says, if you're, if you're thirsty, child, come and drink. But Jill is fearful of the lion's presence, you know, which little girl, big lion, she's afraid. So she doesn't want to come until he moves. So she says, I'm not, I'm not going to come. I'm not going to come to the river. I'm not going to come to the stream and drink. And, she, and, and, and the lion says to her, then you will die of thirst, child. She rejoins by saying that maybe she will go look for another stream. What does the lion say then? He says, there are no other streams, child. Only this one. That nails it, right? That nails it. I read that just a couple of days ago as I was preparing for this sermon. And my heart leapt. There are no other streams. There is only Christ for the thirsty soul. There is only one source of living water, and his name is Jesus, and we must go there and drink, or we will die of thirst. The silver chair nails it. But you know what? I did not learn that truth from the Chronicles of Narnia. I learned it from the Bible. The Bible is the reason that I can exhort you this morning to come to the living water and drink. 
and exhort you that if you go anywhere else, you will perish. You will die of thirst. But come to Christ and your thirst will be satisfied forever. He who drinks of the water that I shall give him, Jesus said, will never thirst again. The water I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. I read those precious words of Jesus in the Bible. I hold fast to that trustworthy word so that I might be able to instruct you in that sound doctrine. Come to Jesus and be saved. Come to the one stream and drink. Find in the Savior eternal life. He died and rose again, and in him you will find life forever. If if you will trust in him, with all the authority of this word, I can promise you, you will have eternal life. You will find forgiveness for your sins. Jesus paid for your sin when he stood in your place and he bore your wrath. The wrath intended for you because of your sin. Jesus stood in your place and he took it and he satisfied it. And Jesus rose again to new life and him we rise to new life. All who trust in him rise to new life. The Bible taught me that, friends. The Bible, isn't the Bible good? And so I can with confidence and boldness and assurance exhort you to believe and to hold on to that for the hope of eternal life. And all the rest of the Christian life too. We teach you how to be holy. We can learn that from the word. We can see how to see the fruit of God's spirit on the boughs and the branches of our life. We can see how to run from remaining sin and how to turn to Christ when you do sin. How to hope in him in the most anxious moments. You know what I mean? Those anxious moments, those long hours as you wait for the pathology report to come back. How to navigate that tricky relationship with your neighbor or your parent or your child. How to think rightly about God and people and sin and death and righteousness and your purpose for existence. All of that we learn from the Bible Therefore, a church leader must hold fast to the trustworthy word as taught so that he might be able to instruct in sound doctrine. He must have the voice of exhortation, and it is the scriptures which supply a person for that voice, the means for that voice. And he must develop a pastoral voice of rebuke. And the scriptures provide for this as well. There is a common thought in our soft American Christianity that a pastor is a good pastor if he is merely friendly. Like the criteria for pastoring is simply the demeanor. He must be friendly. He must smile. And of course, I, I, think, I, I think pastors should be friendly. I, I try to be friendly. I want to be friendly. I hope you found me friendly. When I... Uh, I lived in Siberia for many years, and uh, one way that everyone could tell that I was American was because I would smile a lot. You know, Amer- Russians, it's a very cold country, and I think the further north you get, the, the less smiles you see. Uh, but I would walk around with a smile on my face, and so people would say, you're not from here. And so I'd, I, I'd want people to think I'm from here, so I, I bought all my clothes there. I want to look Russian, you know what I mean? But I'd still have this smile, and they'd look at me and say, oh, you're, you're an American, I can tell, and I would 
mutter some of my best Russian to try to convince him otherwise, but it was a smile that gave me away. Um, so I learned the scowl, the Russian scowl. And I would, uh, I came home on furlough one time, and my mom asked my wife what she had done to her, to, to, to her husband, what she had done to her, to my mom's son. He's not happy anymore. And she, oh, he's happy. He's just more Russian now. <laughs> I've had to relearn the smile, the American smile. I think pastors should be friendly. But I know that a man can be the most friendliest person on the planet and be utterly unqualified for the service of an elder. He can be so friendly that he, on the surface that he refuses to say the strong things to wake you up even if you are in peril. That sounds very friendly. But it's not friendly. If your hotel was on fire while you slept, you would, you would not think it friendly or kind for the fireman to just smile and say soft things so that you can keep on sleeping. The elder must hold fast to the trustworthy word as taught so that he will be able to rebuke those who contradict it. The only way to develop the proper voice of rebuke and even to know when you need that voice is by holding firmly to the trustworthy word. Holding to this word is the only way to have the voice of rebuke and it not be a voice of condemnation or a voice that loves controversy or a voice that is harsh or hateful or proud. The means for getting this right is the word of God. The means of, that make it possible to rebuke, to, to, to have that voice of rebuke, to be firm and resolute and still be loving and patient and kind and gentle. The elder or pastor or overseer must have these two voices. And the scripture provides means for them both. So friends, what a challenge. And not just for church leaders to hold fast to the word of God. This is not just for church leaders. You must hold fast to the trustworthy word. This is for us. And so how do we do that? How do we how do we close the fist of our hearts and our minds tightly around the scriptures like we're holding on to a rope off of a cliff? How do, we, how do we hold on like that, firmly, resolutely, refusing to let them go so not to keep going to this child's book? But the lion's advice to Jill was good. Remember, 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 remember. Meditate, remember. Think about it in the morning, in the evening, when you wake at night. Remember, and I'm sure that Lewis borrowed this from the Bible. Here's one example. To Joshua, God said, this is from Joshua 1, 7 through 9. You don't have to turn there. I think we're going to display it, and you can note it. God said to Joshua, you be strong and very courageous, being careful to do according to all the law that Moses, my servant, commanded you. Do not turn from it from the right hand or to the left. That you may have good success wherever you go. Listen to this. This book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate it on, on it day and night. You shall meditate on it day and night so that you may be careful to do all that is written in it. For then you will make your way prosperous and then you will have good success. Have not I commanded you be strong and courageous. Do not be frightened and do not be dismayed for the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. Friends, my encouragement to you this morning is to resolve to hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught. There are so many helpful and practical ways to go about that. 
We want to help one another, right? I mean, one of the reasons we gather together is so that we can help one another hold firmly to the trustworthy word as taught. We want to help one another. Faith University, it's about to kick off in just a little while. The classes offered here in the middle hour. Faith groups, discipleship with others in the church, the, day, the daily Bible reading, daily worship. You can find that in our, on our website and printed in your worship folders today. And of course, the preaching and the teaching of the Word of God in church. I mean, all of this is ways that we go about trying to help one another grip the Word of God tightly. Take advantage of that, friends. Take advantage of that. Remember this. We know this is not optional. We, his Word in our lives is not a preference. We need His Word it's when we forget his word or doubt his word or think we don't need his word that we become weak and helpless. You need God's word. And to the point of this passage, we must demand of our church leaders and require of prospective church leaders that they hold firm to God's word for everything. You must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught I'll just wrap this up with a word of encouragement about the Bible. And I'm, I'm getting this from John Piper. It's one of my favorite quotes of, of his about the Bible. Here's what Piper said. And I'll just end with this quote. Listen to this. It's so good. This is Piper. He says, I love the Bible the way I love my eyes. Not because my eyes are lovely, but because without them, I can't see what's lovely. Without the Bible, I, couldn't, I could not see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ. Without the Bible, I could not know the unsearchable riches of Christ. Without the Bible, I would not know that I am a great sinner and that Christ is a great Savior. I love the Bible because it gives the wisdom that leads to salvation and shows me that this salvation is nothing less than seeing and savoring the glory of Christ forever. And then provides for me inexhaustible ways of seeing and knowing and enjoying Christ. Oh, friends, let us hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught. Let's pray. At the end of the day, Father, we know that we cannot rely simply on our grip. We need your help so that we might hold firmly to this trustworthy word. There are so many words spoken out there that are wrong and that lead wrong to wrong places. I'm, I'm, I'm convinced that there are probably some here in this room who have listened, who continue to listen to those words. Oh, Father, I pray that you would turn their hearts today to your trustworthy word. And I pray as a church, we will never, never, never loosen our grip. Your words are life. Where would we go from you? You have the words of eternal life. In Jesus' name we pray.